Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Uh, joining me here in studio in 1285 Avenue of the Americas in New York City. Glad to welcome back for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation, Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, great to be here in person. I think uh, the first one we've done in person in maybe close to three years at this point. So great to be back with you here. It is great to be doing it in person, having good audio and mic uh, for the first time in a while. So, Jason, I know you just released a blog. So the title is No Pain, No Gain. It's posed as a question. So we want to spend a few moments here this morning digging into this blog a bit. Within the blog, you do indicate that markets have recently been in a bad news is good news regime. I think we've seen this before over the years. So can you expand a bit, Jason, for our listeners, what you mean by this? Well, let's start with kind of the performance over the past six weeks, or really July, when we saw the S&P was up you know, about 8%, a strong rally across risk assets in general. Uh, and so what was kind of driving it? And I think one of the factors, probably the biggest factor driving it is that economic data was actually getting worse. Uh, and paradoxically, that means that the market's perception of what the Fed would do became you know, you know more dovish, thinking that the Fed ultimately won't hike as much as it indicated that it could actually pivot. Uh, that was helping to drive rates lower because at some point we saw the tenure down to about 2.5%. Right. And relative to the highs, they were all across the entire curve down at least 30 to basically 50 basis points across the entire curve. Um, lower rates all equal lifts and asset valuations. I think that was the key driver, aided by an environment of, of you know really poor sentiment and positioning in June. That kind of as that kind of recovery that provided a bit of a tailwind. So so in that then that's the bad news. The bad economic news is actually good news because it means the Fed gets less hawkish and maybe ultimately pivots. The data on Friday with the jobs payroll number of uh, you know 528,000 new jobs in July, prior months revised by 29,000, uh, so a very, very strong number, more than double the consensus expectations. Clearly, that's not bad data. So mm-hmm. as an investor, like, what does this mean? If we don't get the bad data, if it means the Fed has to be more aggressive in hiking, and we've seen very significantly the markets that are repricing and some hikes that had priced out after the last FOMC meeting, what does that mean for the market sort of narrative? At a minimum, it sort of puts uh, on pause or hold for a while. This bad news is good news because we don't have the bad news. But does it flip to, well, now good news is bad news because strong income data means the Fed has to hike uh, more aggressively? Um, or is good news ultimately actually kind of good news? I think there's a little bit of uncertainty for the markets you know, right now to say, well, what's the path going forward? Uh, as we get more data on inflation, you know, other economic activity in the next month or so, that'll kind of help clarify. But it sort of takes, in some way, investing was easy in that bad news as good news environment. Now it's a little bit, a little bit more challenging. I'm curious how this all impacts CIO's economic outlook. The jobs report we received this past Friday, it was surprisingly strong, coming at a time when investors are worried about the prospects for a recession here in the U.S. You and I have spoken about this on the podcast here seemingly for months now. So how does that labor data we received on Friday, Jason, alter CIO's thinking on the economic outlook from here? Well, first, I think it kind of puts to rest any real debate about whether the U.S. economy is in recession right now. You know, after the two negative GDP prints in Q1 and Q2, and let's talk of kind of, you know, the quote unquote technical recession. You don't create 500 plus thousand jobs in a month in a recession. There's, There's no precedent. So there's something kind of funky going on there, which suggests we're not in a recession. Uh, the other thing is, uh, well, the second thing is, we start to look at the data, not just the jobs number, but other data of the past, uh, you know, over the two weeks, you're seeing uh, actually a bit of a bounce back. So data has been surprising a little bit more to the upside. There's signs of activity actually picking up in some ways, but there's also sort of a normalization that continues to go on in the economy. Uh, take the jobs number, where now total employment is back to the pre-pandemic level. So we've right. fully recovered all the job losses. 
if you extrapolated where the trend should have been, we're still below that. But, you know, this basically the same number of people employed today versus back in January, February of 2020. Of the 528,000 jobs created in July, roughly 400,000 were in the services sector. So the services sector is bouncing back. We saw last week the, the ISM services index also surprised to the upside in, increased. Uh, in the second quarter, uh, real personal consumption on services actually was positive. Mm-hmm. For goods, it was negative, And we saw the ISM decline getting further. So we're seeing the services part of the economy, which is 70% of spending, is actually doing fine. If you just look at that, things are actually in, in pretty right. good shape. The manufacturing, the goods side, it's clearly slowing. Some of that also just reflects that in 2020, 2020, we just way overshot in terms of how much stuff we were buying, importing mm-hmm. to the country, producing, depleting inventories. Now they're being rebuilt and realized, well, now we've kind of got all the microphones and TVs and whatever else you need, right. now everyone's apparently scrambling to go to Europe for the summer. Right. So you're getting that that sort of shift and it's sort of this normalization. So when you look at the data, there's parts that are weak, there's parts that are aren't. It just means it's really harder to assess exactly what is the state of the economy, how much is deterioration versus just like, yeah, we overshot on goods, now we're going to undershoot and then we'll get back to normal by, let's say, next year. So that's one thing. I think it just it kind of, maybe the picture is not quite as bad as people feared. The third thing is on the timing of recession. Given the strength that we've seen in the recent data, you know we're not in recession now. The momentum should continue at least for a couple more months. I mean, typically the job market doesn't cool on a dime. There's no sudden stops, so you don't go from two, three hundred thousand jobs or five hundred mm-hmm. to zero every month going forward, which is really the characteristic of a recession. You have negative job growth. The past three recessions pre-pandemic, it was six to twelve months when you finally went from positive, solid job growth to negative, which suggests that it's probably not until early next year that a recession really begins, barring some shock with, with Taiwan, with Russia, Ukraine, something like that. So it sort of pushes out the timing. The question is whether does it change the probability of a recession or not? And I think that's more debatable. Some people will look at the jobs number, high wage growth, and say, well, the Fed has to keep hiking. The more they hike, the greater the chance of recession, even mm-hmm. if it comes later. Um, I would say that, you know, there's a pos- this widens the soft landing strip a little bit mm-hmm. because if the economy stays solid, at least into early next year, a lot of indicators suggesting inflation is starting to roll over and, and would, or will continue to kind of roll over going forward. And we'll get the first indication of that tomorrow. If that happens, then you start to get a situation where inflation numbers start to become more palatable. The economy is still growing and it makes the Fed's life at least a little bit easier as opposed mm-hmm. to right now where if growth is slow and inflation is high, they just have to keep pressing forward. The big question becomes, Jason, what does the Fed do from here? And mindful that we're coming off a couple of consecutive meetings where we've seen 75 basis points hikes. And traditionally speaking, thinking over the past 10 years, aggressive policy moves there from the Fed. So where do we go from here looking towards the September meeting? In particular, how many more rate hikes might we see from the Fed for the balance of 2020? and even looking into the first quarter of 2023. So 50 and 75 basis point hikes were both on the table after last FOMC, maybe even a little bit of chance for 100 or 25. Mm-hmm. The, the data, the labor market data would suggest leaning towards 75 and that's what the market's pricing of around 67 basis points uh, for a hike. So let's say two thirds probability of 75. A lot of data between now and then. So we'll get CPI tomorrow. We will get another, the August payroll, the August CPI before then. So I think you, whatever we say now, you know, we could tear the script up in, in mm-hmm. four weeks from now when we, we get more data. Sure. I think the if we look at how much they might hike this year, you know, we would have said about 100 basis points more, let's say 50, 25, 25. Mm-hmm. I think that's still a reasonable you know, expectation for the total amount this year. So if they were to go to 75, then maybe they do 25 and then even potentially pause in December. I don't think it's much more than that. Maybe it's a total of 125 basis points. And barring a dramatic improvement on inflation or growth really slowing, 
I think we're getting at least 50 in September, mm-hmm. and probably another 25. So I think that's the path. The real debate is like, how far does the Fed have to go to hiking rates? Like, what is the terminal rate that they will hike to at some point next year? The market was actually pricing in rate cuts by starting in March. Right. Now it's a little bit, you know, continued hikes until March and then waiting a little bit and maybe cutting by the middle of the year. Mm-hmm. But it's still at around 3.6%. The Fed's projections in June were like 3.8%. We'll get an update on that projection in, um, in September. If the Fed ultimately has to go to 4% or higher because the economy isn't slowing down or inflation is still high, mm-hmm. that certainly increases the risk of a recession. But I think that's the debate that's going to take place. So is really more how far does the Fed have to go? How damaging is that to the economy? And in some way, where is the neutral rate? Mm-hmm. You know, Is policy actually restrictive when it's 3% or with inflation still high, nominal GDP still high, is the policy still loose? Do they have to go to like mm-hmm. 5% or more? I think that's, that's where the key debate is. And as it shifts around, that's going to lead to a lot of potential volatility in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, Jason, just reflecting over the past week, we have seen some upside momentum in the equity markets. A bit of hesitancy this morning in the futures, maybe ahead of that CPI print for July, which we will be receiving tomorrow morning at 8.30. Though, uh, digging into the blog here a bit further, Jason, you do suggest within the blog that the strong labor data increases the upside risk to the economy as well as the market. So why is that? Well, this is what I alluded to a few minutes ago regarding sort of like the soft landing kind of path got a slightly wider. Mm-hmm. It goes back to if the economy is is still you know growing, the momentum is enough that it gets us into early next year and it's still growing. You also have a situation where maybe inflation comes down sharply, you know, kind of surprising, you know, to the downside, like in a positive way. Mm-hmm. That could allow the Fed to be more measured on how much it hikes. It could say, you know, we need to continue to keep hiking or at least keep policy restrictive for longer. So a little bit tight, not aggressively. So have growth below trend. Let's say, you know, trend is 2%. So growth ideally around 1%. That cools the labor market. You might even see unemployment rate tick up slightly to like, you know, closer to 4%. But you don't kind of overshoot and you don't actually experience negative GDP growth. That's kind of the ideal soft landing scenario. That's what the Fed has sort of laid out. I think that this, the the strength of the economy right now suggests, okay, we're not in a recession. And if inflation data is coming down, there is that sort of combination where those things could play out. Now, I wouldn't make that sort of a base case. I think that that is mm-hmm. the upside scenario. But the fact that the economy is more resilient than people assumed, and we're seeing every day kind of more data points that would suggest inflation should moderate, whether it's shipping times, you know, price of energy and food is coming down. So a lot of data points would suggest there should be some kind of rollover inflation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So by Q1 of next year, CPI, headline CPI, instead of 9.1%, could be like Mm 5.5%. And then as you move throughout the year, it continues to decline. So I think that's the kind of the upside scenario. Uh, So which is why uh, if we get good inflation data, like that surprises to the downside. I think the markets will react more positively to that than if it was negative data where it surprised a little bit to the upside because like, well, the Feds are going to hike, so it doesn't really change the narrative. Or mm-hmm. if it's coming down quickly, people will get more optimistic that a soft landing is possible, whereas right now people still believe a recession is inevitable. Well, I have noticed that energy prices have come down a bit. Uh, airline tickets, not so much. So I don't think I'm getting to Europe this summer, unfortunately, but uh, there's always next year, though. Just given the macro outlook and the uncertainty, if we're being honest, there is a lot of uncertainty is still ahead of us, Jason. What are the investment implications that you can highlight for us? Well, first, you know, I laid out an, an upside scenario, but we're still in an environment where inflation is uncomfortably high. You know, And even with a, a better than expected report tomorrow, it could still be 8.5%. Mm-hmm. That's not yet clear and sustainable evidence that inflation is coming down, particularly core inflation, because the decline this month could be primarily due to gas prices coming down, which is positive, mm-hmm. but that's not kind of reflective of the core trend of inflation. Right. 
so if that environment, high inflation, a really strong labor market where wage growth is high, you have a, a Fed and other central banks that need to be in tightening mode to kind of tighten financial conditions, slow growth, bring inflation down. That's been the case for much of this year. As long as that persists, it's a challenging environment, I think, for, for risk assets to, to really move substantially higher. What happened in July, we'd view that as a bear market rally, um, and maybe there's a little more to go. You know, but you know, until we get a a clear sign, all clear on inflation, and the Fed really does pivot, I think we haven't started a new sustainable bull market. Mm-hmm. Which means, from a positioning perspective, it's probably not the time to make big directional bets to say, you know, yes, things are all in the clear. Worth, we're not there yet. At the same time, if you were very pessimistic, I think the last two weeks' data would suggest, you know, things are moving in a direction that's away from definitely recession to like, well, maybe there's another possibility. So I think mm-hmm. you need to be cautious and getting sort of too bearish at this point in time. What you want to get in a portfolio is, you know, things that can be positioned for different scenarios. So we still continue to like, you know, value stocks. We like commodities. Commodities didn't rally in July with other risk assets. They actually sold off, which kind of in some way makes them from a fundamental perspective more attractive. Um, so in a scenario where we do get a softish landing, those we think can, can do well. Um, at the same time, from a sector positioning perspective and fixed income, it's kind of up in quality buys, not taking a lot of cyclical risk, but don't want to outright de-risk by saying, you know, you should be reducing allocations in your portfolio again, because, you know, I think the pain trade might be for a lot of investors, especially institutional investors who've de-risked this year is that if things turn out to be okay, they have to chase the rally as opposed to mm-hmm. if things get a little bit worse the next month, they've already kind of positioned for things getting worse. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something to, to kind of be cautious of that, um, you know, there's pain on both sides to be under allocated when markets are rising, but also kind of over allocated, obviously, when they, when they decline. So those are sort of the basic ideas that we're, we're espousing right now. Jason, it's very helpful guidance uh, considering how interesting the economic environment is at the moment. As you pointed out, the labor market appears to be strong, though other components of the economy, perhaps a different story. It will be interesting to see that CPI print tomorrow. But Jason, it was great to be here with you in person today for the snapshot. Hopefully more to come of this in weeks ahead of us, though. Thank you again for dropping by the studio, Jason, and for sharing with us your latest insights and allocation recommendations. Well, you're welcome. And it really was great to be here physically today. Absolutely. Thanks again, Jason. Appreciate it. We have been joined this morning by Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. I do want to point out to our listeners, our clients, uh, that Jason's blog, which we have been making reference to on the podcast today, is available for you on UBS.com forward slash research. For clients of UBS, reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the blog directly. Again, the title posed as a question, no pain, no gain. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.